Let's take a copy of God's Word and turn together to uh, Genesis chapter 37 once again, verses 12 through 36 this morning. This is uh, the story of Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. Uh, before we read our text, let's, uh, let's join our hearts together once again in prayer and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this story of Joseph and his brothers. For it is full of hope and encouragement for those who are perplexed by the troubles of their lives. It's so full of Jesus and your ways with us to make us more like him. So would you be our teacher today, Holy Spirit, and enable us to see Christ in this passage. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, confidence and hope and assurance from this text in the midst of the perplexing providences of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 37, beginning in verse 12. Let's, let's hear God's word. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. 
But his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. He identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Well, uh, in the musical, Les Miserables, and don't ask me to pronounce it properly because I'll mess it up. I'll just go with Les Mis. Um, you know, the, the character, uh, Fontaine, she sings a song called I Dreamed a Dream. And she is, she's remembering former days when she married a younger man, a young, handsome man who, who left her pregnant and alone. And then she sadly sings these words, Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. Her dreams had been crushed by unforeseen events, leaving her in a pit of despair. And you know, friends, we'd like to think that our lives will not be like Fontaine's. But the reality is, the fact is, that for many of us, our lives do not turn out the way that we thought they would. And our lives are, in fact, very, very fragile. Uh, our lives can be shipwrecked and, and destroyed by an unforeseen sickness, uh, death of a loved one, a broken marriage, uh, an abusive relationship, and on and on and on we could go. Now in Gen- Genesis 37, it seems as though Joseph's God-given dreams have been decimated, have been crushed. And yet we are meant to see as we study this section of Genesis as a whole that God is in fact in complete control of every detail of Joseph's life. In fact, God is at work through the shattering experience of suffering at the hands of his own brothers. The the wicked actions of Joseph's brothers, by the providence of God, become the very means by which God brings about good in Joseph's life 
good in the lives of his murderous brothers and indeed good for the entire world. Now, as we look at this passage together, what I want to do today is simply walk through the narrative together to make sure we understand what's going on here. And then I would like us to draw out from it two lessons about God's sovereignty in the midst of the perplexing providences of our lives. So let's start with the story here, what, we, what we've just read, the selling of Joseph. We've, we've already met this dysfunctional family. We, we've already seen that there is, there is bad blood between Joseph and his brothers. They hate their brother. They hate him because of the bad report that he brought against them to their father. They hate him for the special robe that he's been given, a a symbol of the favoritism that Joseph has been shown. But they also hate him, as you see in this text, for his dreams and his words. So this hatred and jealousy are what define this relationship, but... In spite of this toxic home environment, it looks as though Jacob was largely blind to how serious the situation, how much this relationship between Joseph and his brothers really had deteriorated. Because Jacob makes the decision to send Joseph out alone into the fields to check up on his brothers and to see how they're doing and to come back and and report. So Jacob sends Joseph out into, uh, into the area of Shechem to look for their brothers. And it looks at first as though Joseph is going to come up empty. He's wandering in a field and he can't find his brothers. And seemingly by chance, there is this man in the field who happens to know the whereabouts of Joseph's brothers. And so he tells them they've headed off to Dothan, and so off to Dothan Joseph goes. And before Joseph comes to his brothers, though, we're told that they saw him coming from afar. I think they they recognized him from a distance because he was wearing that hated coat. And while he's coming, they conspire, they see an opportunity. Here it is, brothers. Now's the chance. And they conspire together and say, let us kill him and pretend that he has been devoured by a wild beast. The reality is, as we think about this story from another perspective, just for a second, these brothers have no idea what they're doing. They're saying, let's let's kill him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. They, They think that by killing the dreamer, they are getting rid of the dreamer and his dreams when in fact they are putting into action events that will lead to the fulfillment of these God-given dreams. It's an amazing thing. I mean, the wonder of this story needs to capture us afresh because this is something that God does again and again and again throughout the Bible. He works through The wicked actions of men to bring about good. You can put it this way with with Joseph and his brothers. That through the wicked actions of these men, 
what happened and what happens to Joseph God is at work to save the killers God is at work to do good to Joseph God is even now at work to do good to Joseph's brothers and God is at work to do good for the entire world through Joseph does that sound familiar to you does that sound Jesus-like to you. But going, going back to the story here, uh, the, the oldest brother, Reuben, uh, Reuben who will have to give an answer for, for Joseph, and, and who's already in bit, uh, disfavor with his father Jacob for sleeping with Bilhah, Reuben says, let's, let's not kill our brother. I, I, have, a, I have a different idea. Let's, let's just throw him in the pit in, in the wilderness and, and leave him for dead. Because Reuben secretly planned to come back when the brothers were gone and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. I think, actually, I think Reuben has a lesson for us with with regard to leadership. For anyone in a position of leadership, being a leader, as Reuben was, as the eldest brother, being a leader involves making tough decisions, and if necessary, living with the unpopularity of those decisions. It it means a fundamental commitment to integrity. But Reuben, Reuben didn't want to go against the opinion of his brothers. He wanted to keep face with his brothers. He didn't want to stand against the will of his brothers. And so at best, Reuben's attempt was a half-hearted attempt to do the right thing because he didn't want to be the odd man out. And as a result, he failed. He failed in his leadership, and in the end, he would lose his right to the inheritance because of his actions here. But the brothers did agree to go along with, with Reuben's plan. They, they, didn't, they didn't kill Joseph, but the language here certainly suggests a, a brutal assault of Joseph. When he comes, they, they seize him and they strip him of his robe and they throw him into a pit. And then within earshot, they sit down and begin eating lunch as if it's just any other ordinary day. There's real hatred and malice here. I mean, these, we know, we know Joseph begged. We know Joseph cried out for mercy because in a few chapters, in I think it's Genesis 42, by the brothers' own admission, they admit to hearing the cries of their brother for mercy and they did not listen to him. But then, here's another seemingly random event as the brothers are, you know, sitting there eating their, I don't know, pita, chips, and hummus. Uh, guess what happens? A caravan happens to be passing by, headed down to Egypt. And Judah has another idea. Judah, Judah presents this plan to his brothers and says, look, we don't, we don't have to shed the blood of our brothers. I have a better idea. We can, we can sell him into slavery. He's as good as dead to us anyway, so why not make a profit from all of this? And so the, the brothers agree to this plan, and they agree to sell Joseph 
for 20 pieces of silver. I just want to, I want to pause for, for another second here for application, thinking about that. You know, to, to these brothers, this seemed like the perfect solution to their Joseph problem. It was, uh, it was an opportunity to get rid of Joseph without actually physically harming him. That, that seemed to them like the right thing for all of them to do in that moment. Now, what's that saying to us? I think it's saying there, there are many times in life when the wrong decision may seem right to us. And it may seem right to us because it suits what we want. You know, we, we should learn, I think, from the brothers here that it is so easy for us with sinful and deceptive hearts that we have to rationalize our actions so that we can follow our sinful desires and justify ourselves. Because sinners, we're, we're masters at doing that. Look at this story and, and you see that they were, they were able to convince themselves that what they were doing really wasn't that bad. Judah, in essence, makes the lesser of two evil arguments. He says, look, selling him into slavery isn't as bad as killing him, so let's go, let's go with this route. But I think we need to recognize that we're not all that different from the brothers when our hearts at times are set on doing wrong. We, we defend our compromises. We try to justify our actions because when the heart is set on getting what it wants, regardless of what God wants, we make all sorts of moral compromises. But just look at this story objectively. There is no justifying their actions. You know, selling him into slavery instead of killing him is really a distinction without a difference. What they are doing is objectively, morally wicked because their hearts are full of hatred and jealousy. That's why the first 11 verses of chapter 37 constantly associate a single verb with the brothers of Joseph. Hate, hate, hate. Because, you know, I think if you asked these brothers, what was motivating you here? I, I, I think they would have said, this is, this is what we need to do. This is the right thing. They probably wouldn't have acknowledged their hatred and malice and jealousy. And yet this is what was driving them to do wrong. But there's also a great irony in, in this story. I, I wonder if you noticed it as we were reading. Joseph is sold into slavery by the recommendation of Judah. Judah, who will eventually be graciously converted and transformed by God, is an ancestor of Jesus. Jesus comes from Judah's line. So think about that. The same man who sold his brother for 20 pieces of silver, the, the asking price for a slave, is a descendant of Jesus who would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. He, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He was rejected by his own brothers and through the providence of God became the savior of the killers. 
It's no, it's no wonder that when Christians come to this text, having read the whole Bible, that they can't help but see shadows of Jesus in this story of what God is doing in Joseph's life. But the story's not over because the brother's work isn't done. The brothers still have to go home and sell this story to their father, Jacob. So they took Joseph's special garment. They covered it in blood and, and they allowed Jacob to draw the logical conclusion. Friends, do you, do you see how wickedly clever that is? They are able to get their father to buy into a lie without having to speak a lie themselves. You see how, you see how deep deception runs in the human heart. They place the robe before him, covered in blood. Do you recognize this? Is, your, is this your son's robe? And Jacob drew the logical conclusion that his son had been torn to pieces. And so Jacob tears his own garments and, and enters into mourning. And none of his other sons or daughters could comfort him, we're told. This is, this is showing us part of the problem in Joseph's own heart. It's as though all of his other children really don't matter to him at all. As they try to, as they try to comfort him, he says, No, I will go, I will go down into the grave mourning. And then just like that, the narrator transports us down to Egypt and tells us that Joseph was sold into Potiphar's house. And what we're really being told, if we look at this story from the big picture, is that Joseph was exactly where God wanted him to be. And so as we think about this story... Now, let's, let's draw out from it two lessons about God's sovereignty in the midst of the perplexing providences of our lives. Here's the first lesson. God is sovereign over the inexplicable events of our lives. I want you to think about this story from, from Joseph's perspective for a moment with me. Because... God is sovereign over everything that happens to him here. And his sovereignty is at work in complex and profound and unsearchable ways, just as it is in our lives. You know, think with me for a minute about all of the coincidences in this story that were necessary to get Joseph down to Egypt. To start, Jacob needed to send Joseph to check on his brothers. Joseph then had to meet this unknown man randomly in the field who happened to know about the whereabouts of his brothers. And Joseph had to be stripped and thrown in the pit. The brothers had to buy into Reuben's plan to not kill him immediately, but to leave him there in the pit. And then the brothers had to buy into to Judah's plan to sell him into slavery. You see, all of these, all of these seemingly random coincidences are coming together to agree with the sovereign plan of God for Joseph's life. Yeah, just uh, as you think about all of these events, I think they seem, the way the narrator tells the story, they seem completely 
natural, don't they? There's nothing supernatural about any of this. From a secular point of view, all of these events seem to be random, meaningless, not sovereignly directed to a particular end. Just take, take, take the stranger in the field for a minute, the seemingly most fortuitous event, I think, in this whole story, and, and trace it through for a second. You know, no, no man in, in the field, no meeting with his brothers, no meeting with his brothers, no being thrown into the pit, no being thrown into the pit, no being sold into slavery, no being sold into slavery, no going to Potiphar's house, no going to Potiphar's house, no being falsely accused, no being falsely accused, no being thrown into prison, no being thrown into prison, no interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, no interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, no plan for famine relief, and no plan for famine relief, no salvation of Jacob and his entire family, no salvation of Jacob and his family, no savior of the world. That's how big this story is. I'm not talking about Joseph anymore, I'm talking about Jesus. That's how big this story is, if we put it in its proper context. No man in that field know Jesus Christ on the cross. Not a single event in this story, my friends, is random or unguided or or undirected. Now think about this, though, from Joseph's perspective, as all of this is unfolding in his life. And none of it made any sense whatsoever. It was painful. It was confusing. You know, God was sovereign over all of it, but Joseph couldn't explain any of it. Because from his point of view, it looked like God was destroying his life. It looked like God was taking those dreams and saying, never mind, my mind has changed, that's gone. God's plan, think about it, it left Joseph thrown into a pit after being stripped, sold into slavery, falsely accused, and then thrown into prison and forgotten. That was God's plan for Joseph's life. And then what about Jacob? God's plan left Jacob, Joseph's father, inconsolably bereaved, in a state of sorrow so deep he said he would die mourning. So Joseph and Jacob's lives, see, they, they, they looked hopelessly shattered. And there was, there was no voice speaking from heaven saying, it's okay, Joseph, I love you and I have a plan. And uh, let me tell you about how this is all going to end. Joseph had nothing to hold on to but faith in the promises of God. He didn't know how this was all going to play out at all. So just imagine with me for a minute. Let's say that you are, uh, let's say you're a Christian counselor and uh, you're able to go visit Joseph while he's in prison. Joseph tells you his story, everything that's happened to him, that he's, that he's clinging to God and, and his word. And Joseph's, you know, looking for counsel, looking for advice. And the reality is, dear friends, you could be the most wise and insightful counselor 
in the world and you would not have been able to explain to Joseph what God was doing. It would take years and years and years before any of this became clear to anyone what God was up to. But by the end of this story, faith and hope are vindicated. And that's one of the lessons we need to take with us, dear friends. Faith and the promises of God are vindicated. I hope that's an encouragement to to those of you who are wrestling with uh, the bitter reality of perplexing providence in in your life. Maybe, Maybe you doubt that God could be in control of the mess that has become your life. You don't see how anything good could come from it. Or maybe, maybe you've gone a step beyond that and you've become bitter and angry with God because this is the way he has steered your life. You know that it is God who has shattered your dreams and you're having a hard time dealing with that reality. If that's where you are, my friends, Joseph's story is for people like you. God's sovereign providence does sometimes take us in and through experiences that shatter our hopes and our dreams. And yet, the the other side of the story is that it it is precisely God's loving providence that is at work in the midst of pain and affliction. See, our Father, my friends, has profound life-changing, eternally significant lessons that he wants to teach you and me which cannot be accomplished unless he leads us through the storm. No savior of Jacob's family, no savior of Egypt, unless Joseph leaves home. No exposure of Jacob's own idolatrous heart, unless Joseph is taken from him. And God loved Jacob too much to let him cling to his idol. And so too, you see, your afflictions are never meaningless if you are a child of God. God does not let an ounce of Christian suffering go to waste. He always, always, has a good purpose to accomplish in the seemingly inexplicable events of our lives. And so this is the first lesson. God's sovereignty extends to the inexplicable events of our lives. Here's the second lesson I want us to take from this story. God is sovereign over willful human sin. God is sovereign over the willful wickedness of Joseph's brothers. Now, here is where people typically begin to to balk at the doctrine of divine sovereignty. Yeah, okay, God is sovereign over, over random circumstances and events, but isn't human wickedness really reducible just to human free will? Well, notice with me how necessary God's ordering of circumstances was for the brothers to act out their sinful desires. As long as, as long as Joseph stayed at home, the brothers didn't have the opportunity to vent their murderous hate of their brother. You know, if Jacob had, had really thought this through and, and saw the circumstances as clearly as, as he should have, then he, 
then no doubt he wouldn't have sent his favorite beloved son into the hands of murderous men. And yet, God providentially provided the opportunity and the sins of their hearts emerged in, into action. You see, think about ourselves for a minute. We have, we have many sinful thoughts in our hearts on which we never act simply because there is no opportunity to do so. That's true if we're honest with ourselves. Our hearts are restrained from outward sin by all sorts of constraints that God graciously keeps in our lives. You know, the opinion of others, the consequences of our actions, social taboos, and the fear of others, and so on. And what, what we should really think about those sorts of things is those are, those are acts of God's kindness to us. Because if we lived in a world where every person acted out of every sinful desire that they had in their hearts, we would be living in a hell of our own making. But you see, God graciously and most often restrains the sins in our hearts. Yet, and here's what we see in Genesis 37, at other times for his own wise reasons, God removes those restraints and ordains circumstances where there is both motive and opportunity to go ahead and sin. And we are, we are permitted to act upon the desires of our sinful hearts. So notice, notice here that in ordaining Joseph's circumstances, God doesn't create sin. He doesn't author the, the brother's sin, sinful acts. Their, their sinful acts emerge from their sinful hearts. They want to kill their brother, and yet God is still sovereign over their sin. God is still sovereign over the wickedness of these brothers and he's at work to bring about his own good plan through this great wickedness. So let's ask a question here. What, what can we learn from, from Joseph's brothers for ourselves? What, what might we learn about God's providence in their lives in permitting this great wickedness? I think the lesson is that God may show us, through our sin, what we are really capable of. You know, we can so easily deceive ourselves into thinking we're, we're pretty decent folks. We'd never do such and such a sin. Perhaps because of some of the outward constraints that God in his kindness has placed in our lives. Perhaps some of us have grown up in a stable home, or, or we've grown up... In, in the church, where we've been strongly encouraged by our, our providential circumstances to act in a certain way. And that, so we can, we can easily convince ourselves that we're better than other people. But the reality is, dear friends, that if a particular sin is in our hearts, apart from the grace of God, if it's anger, malice, lust, greed, or, or whatever it is, all it takes is the right circumstances for that sin to bear its bitter fruit. And for some of us, God ordains those circumstances so that we would see ourselves as we really are. 
and that it would lead us to repentance, that it would lead us to, to turn from our sin and turn to the Lord and cast ourselves upon his sovereign mercy. You know, maybe some of you are, are in that spot. You're, you're realizing, I'm, I'm a much bigger sinner than I ever realized. It may be the, the same same besetting sin that you go back to over and over and over again. This sin that seems to have a stranglehold on your life. Or it could be a, a one-time fall into some grand sin that has left you feeling dirty and guilty and ashamed. And as if God could never forgive you for that sin. If that's where you are, there's also incredibly good news for you in this story. There's grace for Joseph's brothers. Here's the amazing thing about this story, my friends, is we're not talking here about utter pagans. I hope you realize that. We're talking here about the covenant people of God. These are the, these are the foundation stones of the covenant community of God's people in the Old Testament. There's, there's grace for murderous brothers. There's grace for great sinners. You know, we may not be guilty of the same specific outward sins as them. And that's because God has providentially kept us from committing them because we've all experienced anger and malice in our hearts. The amazing part of this story is that we, like Joseph's brothers, can be included in the people of God, made members of the, the Israel of God, and through faith in Jesus, be washed and cleansed and accepted and transformed by God. Let me wrap up uh, with this. You know, I think, I think it's safe to say all of us have probably heard the saying that uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know, that's a perfectly biblical statement when you, when you think about it. The problem is we often take our concept of a wonderful life and project it onto those words. God loved Joseph and had a wonderful plan for his life. But it wasn't Joseph's plan. And it wasn't Jacob's plan. You know, as Reformed Christians, I think sometimes in our snobbishness, we stick up our nose at that phrase. But friends, we have the theology to justify that. Our God is sovereign and, and gracious. And in the perplexing providences of our lives, he has a plan. And even though we ache in the pit and we do not understand what that plan is, his word assures us, it assures us that if he, if he planned our salvation through the suffering of his one and only son, then surely, dear friends, we can trust that he loves us and does have a wonderful plan for our lives. Isn't this a great story? I mean, we're just getting into it, but I'm, I'm so excited to go through the rest of this story together. And it's not just a story. It's gospel. 
May, may we trust in the God of promise in the midst of the perplexing providences of our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you. Some of us have known deeply troubling and perplexing providences in our lives, and we have many, many unanswered questions. Lord, we come today to bow before you and acknowledge that you are our sovereign and gracious Heavenly Father. And we trust that you are never mistaken and that there are no incidental details to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust you and that through the circumstances of our lives, you would more and more mold us and shape us to be like our suffering Savior who is now exalted and free from suffering forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.